Shalom and welcome again to this week's edition of Seekers of Meaning, the podcast arm of Jewish Sacred Aging. Thank you for joining us. I am your host, Rabbi Richard Address. Uh, if you'd like to contact us with ideas or suggestions or comments on the show, please feel free to email me, Rabbi Address at JewishSacredAging.com. And of course, we invite you to visit our Facebook page, um, Jewish Sacred Aging on Facebook. And it's with a great deal of pleasure that we welcome in today's show a colleague of uh, mine, a former worker with me at the Union for Reform Judaism, Rabbi Marla Feldman, the author of a brand new Jewish Publication Society volume called Biblical Women Speak. Rabbi Feldman is the Executive Director Emerita of the Women of Reform Judaism. Marla, hi. Nice to see you. It's great to see you, and thank you for having me on your podcast. First of all, congratulations on the book. This is a very exciting book. Um, lots to talk about. I, I really, I also, I want to explore with you how, how you think this is best used within synagogue land. Um, but in the beginning of the book, you talk about the, uh, your journey to Midrash. Um, and at Penn, crosses, across the river from where we are. Um, talk to me about how you sort of like, got involved with and fell in love with Midrash, which led you to, to this? Sure. Well, I'm very grateful to my the scholars, rabbis, um, teachers that I had that introduced me to Midrash, um, because it really is a passion and always has been. I uh, was one of those kids that knew I you know, was going to be a Jewish studies major in college, and I loved Jewish texts. And um, although it wasn't called a, you know Jewish studies at the time, I was a Jewish studies major at Penn, and I had an opportunity to study at the time with Dr. Judah Golden, who was an expert in the field of Midrash. Um, and uh, I, I had never under, never knew that there was such a thing as Midrash, but of course I had grown up on Midrash. You know, we all heard stories of Abraham smashing his father's idols and things like that that are in fact Midrash. So when I started learning about it, I was captivated by it, by the um, creativity of it, by the way it allowed us to really probe the biblical text and find new and new meanings and then when i was in rabbinical school i had the privilege of studying with dr norman Cohn, who also is an expert in midrash um, and so through deeper studies with him i not only learned some of the stories but the methodology of midrash also is a type of literature that finds its way in throughout our text in the Talmud, uh, some midrash is actually in the Bible itself. Um, later commentaries and, and um, collections of rabbinic literature, uh, so it finds its way throughout Jewish literature to develop this uh, a whole strand of deeper interpretations of the biblical text. And of course, as rabbis, we read the same stories year after year after year. Um, and yet they are always new because what we're doing, whether we're naming it as Midrash or not, we're always interpreting it. And we're always bringing what is on our minds, what is new for ourselves, uh, what, it, what um, our experiences lead us to ask. And questions are really the essence of Midrash. Asking those questions, what really is happening here, and what's underneath the text, and what were these biblical characters thinking? So it allows us to read and reread and constantly come to the text anew, and to put into the text our own thoughts and experiences in very creative ways. So you can tell I love the process. 
I love being engaged in the process. And so uh, really, I've been writing my own modern midrash for many years. So I've been um, very uh, honored that JPS agreed to publish this collection. Um, you had started your question about how congregations can use it. So one of the things that I think makes this book unique is that there are different elements that I think will be usable for different groups. Um, there's my modern midrash, which reads almost like short stories, my interpretations of, of what was between the text, uh, what's, uh, you know, reading between the lines and the gaps of the text. And also from a feminist perspective, looking at female characters that were not as developed in other rabbinic literature as some of the male characters. So for those who, who just want to explore creative retellings of the story, that is there for them. Um, but I, when I write a midrash, I don't just make it up out of whole cloth, although a lot of it is made up. But I start really by looking not only at the biblical text itself, but what others said before me. Um, so I, I'm not looking at other modern midrash, and there is a wealth of it. So I encourage people to engage with it. Um, but I am looking at the Talmud and rabbinic literature, commentaries from the Middle Ages, uh, and the classical midrash to see what were the questions that those who studied the text before me had. Um, what are some of the nuances that I may not have thought of? So I, I'm always struck by some of the really creative and in some cases outlandish things that they came up with. So my midrash is very much informed Although in some cases I'll reject their perspectives, but it's very much informed by what I have learned. So for rabbis or educators that are teaching Midrash, there is a section in the text, in the book, um, that looks at the classical Midrash and what I used as the basis for my Midrash, including the, those elements that I rejected. So for those teaching Midrash, there's a, you know, a really nice section for each one of these chapters. Uh, and then there's a third section um, that may be of interest to people who are looking at Bible study or text study and looking to to um, engage with the text and explore how these ancient stories are relevant for us today. So that section is um, kind of my overlay of what I learned from these characters, what we may find resonates for us with today's issues and challenges and what we may learn from these characters. So the three sections of each chapter, I think, will be useful for different purposes uh, and different, you know, congregational uh, classes, text study, um, or those who just want to engage in the Midrashic process themselves. You, as you alluded to uh, when you were talking before, and the subtitle of the book is Hearing Their Voices Through New and Ancient Midrash. And each section of each person does include, starts with the actual text. And as you said, then branches off into modern and your interpretations, etc. But you chose, on the whole, to take a look at uh, not necessarily uh, the headliners. But you chose, and I think this is the real um one of the great insights of the book and gifts of the book because you bring characters who basically in many cases just skipped over in a Torah reading Torah study you know blah blah, blah. but you really unpack them and you highlight them you lift them up so i as i was reading through the book i'm saying okay marla how how come you chose to to talk about some of these let's for the sake of argument call them minor 
uh, women in, in the tradition? What drove you to that? What, what sparked your interest in that? I do find them the most interesting in part because I think you can be the most creative with them. You know, the less that's written about them, the more opportunity there is to, you know, put yourself in the text. Um, but I think it's also because so much of our own history and even in today's world, so many women's voices are missing. Um, and that's a shame. We're missing half of our stories historically. Um, and the stories, our tradition, our texts, um, are deficient because of that. But when we rediscover their voices and their stories, it becomes a much more rich and a much more full picture of real, of our past. Um, so, uh, by way of example, um, Shlomi Bat Dibri is the only woman named in the book of Leviticus. Well, that alone to me sparks my interest. Why was she the only one? And the, and the rabbis had much to say about that. Um, but she's only mentioned in the context of her son. Um, and we don't know her son's name, but it's the story that is a relatively well-known story about the blasphemer who um, used God's name in vain and was stoned to death. So it was uh, Moses and God, you know, teaching a lesson. So these new laws that they had just gotten in the wilderness are to be taken seriously. And there are serious consequences for violating them. So the the lesson through most of history about that has been about the blasphemer and how horrible that crime is and the importance of the new laws and and the focus on um on, on the laws and and our new relationship with with God but what jumps out at me is Shlomi Batibri you know so wait a minute how did this story come to be it didn't just start with his um, committing blasphemy. There was a backstory there that's not told. So the rabbis do ask that question and, and studying the traditional texts really lift up many elements of the story that are, um, that re that really bring color to the story. So the only thing we know from the text itself is that <clears throat> her name is Shlomi Batibri. She was, um, um, the mother of this young man who was half Israelite and half Egyptian. So just from that single element in Leviticus, there are such a wide range of questions. You know, how did she come to have a half Egyptian son? So how did this Israelite former slave come to have a half Egyptian son? So the traditional texts have lots of theories about it. They talk about what might have happened in, in Egypt. They talk about she may have been raped. She may have, um, had an illicit affair, you know, so there's lots of theories about that. Um, but one of the, the most interesting um, midrashic insights that I picked up on um, was the um, analogy between this reference to him being the son of an Egyptian man, that phrase Egyptian man, and the earlier story of Moses who saw an Egyptian man striking an Israelite. And then, of course, Moses commits murder, kills him, and that's when Moses runs away. So the rabbis make a connection between the Egyptian man and those two stories and say, aha, that must have been the father of this Israelite child. So that, to me, becomes a launching point in telling Shlomit's story. Um, so who she was, and, uh, you know, I could have read the story in a lot of different ways as the rabbis did. Um, but I, and maybe this is seeing the 
text through a female lens or um, not even a feminist lens, but just a, a woman's lens. Um, I depicted her backstory as I imagined it as a love story, um, as a Romeo and Juliet love story um, between star-crossed lovers uh, who were from two different worlds and could not exist in those two different worlds. So seeing it that way and making the analogy. So now this woman has um, a half Israelite, half Egyptian son living with the Israelites who of course would resent the Egyptian father. Um, and you've got the dynamic of her son, um, her son's father having been murdered by Moses, if you connect those two stories. So what does that change for her and how she sees the laws and how she perceives Moses, who not only killed her beloved and the father of her son, but also is responsible for killing her son um, in, in um, fulfilling the command that he be stoned to death. So um, when I put those elements together, I. I feel a Romeo and Juliet story, which doesn't have a happy ending, um, as Romeo and Juliet did not have. Um, so there are so many different ways we can read these stories. But be, when we bring ourselves and our own experiences to the text, we're going to come up with very different ways um, to understand the text, certainly, than the rabbis of the Middle Ages discovered in this text. Um, and, and there are things we can learn from it. So, you know, just to continue with this story. So here you've got living among the Israelites in their wilderness journey, having just escaped slavery. You've got this half Egyptian kid, no name um, and no family, really, because the tribal system was built around the male line. So because his Israelite connection was through her, he would not have had a tribe that was his own. And that, of course, the tribes travel together as tribes. So what did that mean for them? So it, continuing the story, you have this child growing up, probably ostracized, bullied. Um, we know that there was a fight in the camp. What was the fight about? The rabbis uh, wrestled with what that might have been. Again, putting these insights into the story, I see a child being bullied and speaking out. So I read a story that has a great deal of sympathy for her and her son, um, whereas another reading might look rather harshly at someone who committed blasphemy. Um, so into, in making relevance for today, there are people in our midst, in our camp, who um, don't have a tribe, who are outsiders, who may want to become insiders but can't, who are bullied. And what happens to them after a lifetime of being bullied? What, what do they become? And what does society then have to cope with um, in having helped to raise a child with that kind of trauma? So I think there's a lot we can learn from the text, but we're going to learn different things depending on who's telling the story and whose midrash, whose insights are amplifying that story. So um, and you, you raised something very interesting because um, if I'm not mistaken, you 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 are available for scholar and residence work in congregations and stuff. So let me ask you: when you go out and do these things, um, do you encourage like in a group to write 
their own creative midrash? Because what you just gave us is a very, very interesting example of you just created a modern midrash right here. So um, I would imagine in a group situation to do that with a group who's studying this could be very empowering and also very revealing on a personal level, having done some of this myself and in another with older adults. Um, if somebody wanted to get in touch with you to bring you to a congregation, either on the Zoom machine or, or actually in person. So what's the website? Where do they go, Marla? Very easy. www.marlajfeldman.com. So um, you two of the stars, let's put it that way, that you do talk about, and I wanted to ask you about, um, Leah and Rachel. Fascinating. And, and your subtitle with them was Rivalry and Devotion. And as I'm reading that, I'm saying to myself, well, this is right out of, you know, if you lined up, let's say, 100 rabbis at random and said, well, have you ever had in your office situations where you have sisters slash brothers, but rivalry and devotion? Um, talk to me a little bit how you unpacked this really complicated, but very, very real. I mean, this is this is being lived in tons and tons of families right now. How does it? How did you react and 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 walk us through Leah and Rachel? Yeah, well, I think it speaks to the beauty of midrash because the whole um, focus of midrash is really putting ourselves into the text. What are the what questions we bring to the text will be different from person to person, and also we change over time. So from Moment to moment, the questions will be different. As you said, studying Midrash in a group is powerful because when I do a text study with a group and we find these gaps and we tease out, how would you fill that gap? I'm always amazed at the various insights that different people have, and they're based on their own life experiences. So in the case of Rachel and Leah, um, I early on saw a strand in the Midrash that said that they were twins, which I am a twin. And uh, I'm an older twin. And in this case, Leah would have also been an older twin. So I've always felt um, uh, an affinity to the character of Leah, who is, I think, uh, really disrespected in our tradition. Um, she's she's not the beautiful shepherdess, Rachel, um, who Jacob loves best. Uh, and, and again, most of our text is through the lens of our male protagonists. And, you know, Jacob and, you know, loved Rachel. And so... Um, uh, and Leah was an afterthought, um, and you know the result of of a sham, you know, wedding, and so she gets a bad rap. But in effect, if you just read the story at its simplest level, she did what her father told her to do. She was a devoted wife. She was the mother of the majority of the tribes, uh, and yet she's she's really, I think, underrepresented as a biblical character. So even though Rachel and Leah are major characters. Uh, one of the aspects of the book, you noted that I like the underrepresented characters, but in some cases, even well-represented characters have moments in their lives that are not fully developed. So in this case, looking at their relationship as siblings, uh, twins or not, of having this tense dynamic with sharing a husband with the what I call the womb wars, the rivalry to become the mother of you know more and more because of course that was kind of a measure of wealth in ancient days your you know it was through your sons your husbands your brothers your sons it was through your male relatives that you had security and so the more male sons you had the better um so um 
you know, they, this rivalry was baked into the society in which they lived. <clears throat> so, um, while sibling rivalry is, is the norm <laughs> and, and, you know, those who have siblings know there's going to be rivalry. And certainly in the biblical text, we've got lots of examples of sibling rivalry. Um, what struck me in going deeper into the text is a moment late in the saga of Jacob, Rachel, and Leah when they are returning to the land. Um, and they're about to, um, to well, they're, they're wrestling with leaving uh, Lavan, um, their, their father's home. And you have this moment when, and this is in the biblical text, the sisters are talking to each other and they together decide we should leave. We should take what we have and, you know, Jacob and our families should leave. And it's a remarkable moment because all of the earlier parts of the text show them as rivals, uh, whether it's the wedding night or the womb wars or, um, you know, seeking the aphrodisiac, right? Um, so we see them as rivals, but here, as they are more mature, as their families are growing, as they've achieved a certain um, time in their lives, they are in common purpose. And you hear them talking with one voice. So for me, I see that saga as like so many families, there's been um, a, a coming to a, a place of togetherness after all these rivalries. There's a point at which they can put those behind them and find common purpose. Um, so you know, that when you put those together, you can really see role models for, yeah, we may have challenges with our families, um, but, but repair is possible that we can come to a point in our lives where we can put the childhood issues behind us and find common purpose. For many families, that's taking care of elderly parents. They find common purpose. Hopefully they, you know, repair the past wounds and, and can act together. Um, so in this, in that particular midrash, which is called Leah's eulogy, what I also picked up on, and I mentioned the moments that are not fully developed. So we see in the biblical text when Rachel dies, and of course there's trauma. She, she dies giving birth to the beloved child, Benjamin, um, and then they move on. In that moment, and this is after the two women have found rapprochement, um, we don't hear from Leah. So I, that always struck me as here, her sister, maybe her twin, who she had had this long, challenging relationship with her sister dies. How does she deal with that moment? How does she reflect on it? Um, and, you know, you mentioned it happens in every family. So where there's sibling rivalry and sadly you have a death in the family, you have to come to terms with those things. So Leah's eulogy is Leah's chance to, uh, our chance to hear Leah's voice in reflecting on that life span that she has had with her sister, the traumas, um, the, the, you know, the love, um, and, and finally the coming together and in the moment of death, how she might have mourned for her sister. So I think it's a very human story. I think it's one that many families experience. And that's where I think we have something to learn from these biblical characters, but only if we can put ourselves into the text and 
you know, read some of those elements in that that we have to imagine because it's not in the black and white text. So uh, another fascinating to, to me anyway, I mean, uh, each one of these as you go through the book and for our colleagues out there or directors of education out there who may be listening to some or book club people from congregations, this this, this uh, can be used in a variety of different ways. And um, I want you to also consider not thinking of this just for adults, because I think this could be a very, very interesting uh, text to be used for teenagers who have their own circle of concerns right now and family relationships and sibling rivalries and expectations. And to teach the, the let's call it the art of Midrash, even to teenagers, confirmation, post-confirmation kids, um, I think could be a, a gift that you could give the people in your congregation. Yeah. So I want to so share with you, um, back in the 80s, I was uh, teaching at the Village Temple in New York. This was when I was in rabbinical school, and I was just really discovering Midrash. Um, and I taught a class, I think it was the confirmation class, that was uh, once a month, it was the students and their parents together. Right. And we used Midrash. So we would take one of the stories. I think the Akedah was one. I, I think Jacob and Esau was one. Um, and we looked at some of the traditional Midrash. We engaged in the Midrashic process. You know, what do you think might have happened? How would you have reacted? What questions arise for you from the text? And then we sent them home to create their own modern Midrash together uh, with the parents and the children together. And then when they came back, they shared those um, experiences. And it, it was memorable and powerful and um, a, a very worthy endeavor. So um, I, sh I share that nugget that um, that it's something that no, you no, two no. can I, do. I, I appreciate it because we, we sometimes shortchange our teenagers um, and feed them pablum instead of, and as you found and have I found, when you really engage them on a sophisticated, you know, an adult level, they, they respond very, very well. It's, it's, before we run out of time, there's one last, one last person I want to ask you about, and that's the all-star Miriam. And, okay, so you have that section in the book where she's cast out, uh, the, the first healing prayer, Elna Rafana, uh, Aaron uh, escapes any type of, um, skin outbreak and is not expelled, but Miriam is. And I began to think, well, is Marla really talking about the idea of despite all the, the gains in the feminist movement during our rabbinate? Um, are there still in inequalities? And you spent the bulk of your career working with women and women's issues on a variety of different levels. So before we uh, sort of in conclusion, could you sort of like riff on Miriam and her symbolism to you in this book and, that it, that, are you opening a door to saying, look, we're still having salary inequalities where there's still things to do. We're still, you know, you're a big social justice person. We're still fighting the fight for the control of one's bodies. Um, or am I totally off? <laughs> well, first of all, that's your the, midrash on my midrash. So yeah, well, that's okay. Well, that's, so we're, that's the beauty of midrash. Welcome to it. Yeah. Um, I have to admit that's not what I, what was on my mind, but that's okay. I think the point of this is we hear different things. I, I was talking about Shlomit before, and I um, shared that modern midrash with a group of rabbis. This is decades ago. 
And the response, I mean, I was just thinking, channeling her. What would she have been thinking? And I was, uh, the rabbis, well, this is clearly a polemic on interfaith marriage. And others were, no, 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 it's about uh, capital punishment. And they all were sure what it was about. And that's okay. That's the beauty of Midrash. We bring ourselves. Um, so uh, you're welcome to this perspective. Uh, I can tell you when I was coming to this story, um, what captivated me was the beginning question that here we've got Miriam, who is the you know woman in our tradition, right? And she's it's this odd story. She and Aaron speak against Moses. So there's lots of rabbinic information about what that might have been about, um, but only she is punished. And how is she punished? She's stricken with scales, so we presume something like leprosy. She's exiled from the camp for seven days, and then she comes back and they move on. And I read that and I'm like, well, what a glaring gap that is. You know, she she leaves for seven days and then she comes back. It's like, wait, wait what about those seven days? What happened in those seven days? Um, what happened to her? Um, I think also, um, you know, for um, people dealing with illness, there, you know, there's all the layers, right? The um, whether you know the death and dying, the the stages. Right. But I think people right. with serious illness also have stages, and so I that's really what was on my mind. Here, she was stricken with this life threatening illness. Um, her brother Moses, the great Moses, issues a prayer. And to, from the rabbi's point of view, it's like the prayer that is a model that we should all use. I'm thinking from her point of view, here's Moses who, who year after year defends and pleads on behalf of the Israelite people for her, for his beloved sister who saved his life as a child, five words. El now Rafan Allah, five words. So, you know, if someone who's hurting and in pain, um, and whose family is somehow not doing what she needs them to do to issue five words with in you know as I'm channeling Miriam um really that's all you can do you know you're you're not going to visit me in these seven days your five simple words over and out and you know Aaron doesn't do anything you know doesn't claim share responsibility so for someone who's in that state those that prayer would not necessarily have brought her comfort. And more importantly, I want to share that experience with her. What happened during those seven days? What were the stages of pain and denial and anger and you know all of those different feelings that she would have felt in those seven days? Um, and, and perhaps more importantly, what did she learn in those seven days? And how did she come back to the camp a different person? So when we Put that into our own lives. Um, so many of us experience challenges, deep challenges, pain, loss, illness, and go through those kinds of stages. Um, I think she can become, when we see the nechemta, the, the uplift at the end that she has come out of it, a different and better person, um, that that gives us some, some hope and a role model for you know, there will be a seven day period, there will be a process, but we can come out on the other side. So I think there's a lot to be learned, but only if we see this moment as something to learn from. We don't just send her into the wilderness and then move on, that we go there with her, that we share those struggles and hear her pain and, and let ourselves learn from it. 
So, you know, to your midrash about, you know, how does that relate to my work with, with women? Uh, and I think there is a connection, um, but it is um, less a, a political connection than, than you might read into the text. One of the things that um, I've learned over time, and I think most rabbis have, is everyone has a story. You know, we have these pastoral moments with people and they share their stories with us and things that we may never have known about them. Uh, and it's a privilege to hold those stories. It's a burden sometimes. And I think that's certainly true for women, having worked with women's organizations for so long. Uh, women have their stories. And I've been privileged in the positions that I've had to hear many women's stories. And too often, women's stories have been neglected because the storytellers, at least historically, from the biblical, Talmudic, and later period, were all men. And they were telling their stories with their life experiences. So the women's stories have been neglected. And that's why modern midrash, particularly feminist midrash, so important because we're missing those stories. And the stories that we hold today are powerful. So hearing women's voices, the ancient women's voices, but also today's women's voices, um, you know, that's what the whole Me Too movement is about, that, you know, we collectively as a society realize that women had these stories that they weren't telling. And when the stories started pouring out, it's changed society. Um, and we're still changing and we're still trying to get our hands around it. Um, but that's what happened when we squelched women's stories and didn't hear their voices. And when we do start to listen to those stories and hear their voices, then change can come, healing can come. Uh, and I think we've got a lot to learn and Miriam's story is just one of many. So Rabbi Marla J. Feldman, the author of Biblical Women Speak, Hearing Their Voices Through New and Ancient Midrash. Again, uh, Marla, somebody wants to get in touch with you, bring you to their synagogue organization, et cetera, et cetera. The website is? www.marlajfeldman.com. Marla, thank you very, very much for um, really just opening the door to all these wonderful stories in this very, very powerful, wonderful book. I wish you uh, much joy and happiness and success with this. Thank you to JPS for doing this. And um, let it be the beginning of, uh, you probably have a few more women that you could um, oh, yeah, take a look at. You know, number group. two is already <laughs> underway. <laughs> great, great. Well, then we'll have you back for number two. So thank you very much, and uh, Hatzlacha, and just take care of yourself. Thank you. Stay safe, stay healthy. Thank you. And to all of you, uh, once again, thank you for joining us on today's edition of Seekers of Meaning, the podcast and TV arm of Jewish Sacred Aging. Again, visit us on the website, jewishsacredaging.com, and if you'd like to become a sponsor of uh, these podcasts or to make a donation uh, to help further our work, please get in touch with me, Rabbi Address, at jewishsacredaging.com. We're very, very appreciative of your time and your interest in this, and we thank you very, very much. This is a reminder that the Secrets of Meaning program is recorded at the Broadcast Center of Lubeckin Media Companies in beautiful, beautiful Cherry Hill, New Jersey. And a big shout out to our producer, Steve Lubeckin. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Rabbi Richard Address. And until we see each other again on the next edition of Seekers of Meeting, take care of yourself, stay safe, stay healthy, and most of all, be kind to one another. Toda Rabbah. Shalom.